Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Welcome back to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast. This week, we're resuming our series on pro, uh, professional services life cycles. And we finished up the Lead to Order series uh, on episode before last. This time, we're going to be talking about uh, really starting with the scope to delivery uh, pro- part of the process, which is a little bit unique for professional services firms. You know, I think all companies have lead to, for the most part, have lead to order, hire to retire, order to cash, and and sometimes some special you know processes as well. But but scope to delivery is very specific to professional services because typically, uh, when you're delivering professional services, it's about your intellectual property, um, and so. Often, most of the time anyway, for customers, you're delivering something a little bit different every time you do it. They're not just buying a product off the shelf. So what that means is that you've got to actually scope it, figure out what it's going to take to deliver it and and cost it out, and then work all the way through the delivery cycle, just like you would from a uh, project management standpoint or product management standpoint if if you're uh, in the software business or other types of businesses that have products. So we're going to talk about scope to delivery in the, uh, from the perspective of a professional services firm. And I think probably the first thing we should do is, uh, is define what, what is scope. Uh, anybody have, have a great definition of what scope is? I'm looking at you, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's essentially, it's the description and definition of what you're going to deliver and, you know, the variables associated like with that, I guess. Um, you know, what is it? It's more than I think requirements. It's understanding kind of what the objectives and the requirements and what's the organization and what's the team structure and all of those types of things. And I think as it ties into that, what it's going to, the amount of effort and cost that it's going to take to get there. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yes, definitely. Yeah. No, I mean, this, the, first of all, you got to define what they want and that's the first piece of scope. And then, yeah. then the second is really taking it down to, again, from a PS standpoint, the costing piece of it. Um, and yeah. I think when, to me, estimation, estimation uh, is still, unfortunately, an art, not a science. I mean, I do think that some organizations have gotten better at it over time, and, and you should learn as an organization, <clears throat> which is one of the things I'd like to talk about in a little bit. But how do you guys think about estimation? I mean, if you're asked to scope a project and tell a customer what it's going to take, both in effort and cost, to deliver it, how do you even approach that? So, I mean, I guess I'll start and I'm going to start from the perspective of, you know, this is a prospect in a sales cycle because I think there's various, various things here. There's there's that aspect of you're actually trying to sell something and give them cause for it. Then there's also the value that probably Miriam can talk to better um, of being engaged with a client and having to scope, you know, the various pieces of a project or scope changes to a project. So, but I think you know, the, to, when I approach a, a new prospect, um, you know, there's a few things. I think there's a number of things you're trying to get to. Um, you know, number one, what are their objectives? I mean, if in our case we're doing CRM applications, you know, what is truly their objective? What are they trying to get to? 
um, with this project? You know, what does success look like for them in kind of a year or two? And generally, those are a couple of high-level objectives. And then you kind of start to dig in underneath that and understand, you know, what are the business processes? What are we trying to automate here? Um, you know, how are we going to match that up on the back end to whatever technology we kind of go through? Um, you need to understand their organization. Um, I think there's a lot of value in understanding, um, you know, kind of how it's structured, but also how do they make decisions within the organization. And the reason these lead to scope is because if they're bringing you new to do a project for them, but you realize that, you know, it, it takes them usually days and days and days to make decisions and groups and meetings and things like that, you have to incorporate those kind of factors into scope. So, you go through those awesomes, you go through the business processes, and out of the business process come, um, come the requirements, um, and you start to map those on the back end to kind of what it looks like in the technology. Um, I'll pause there for a second because I think I can go on and on about the, uh, the prospects of this, but I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on kind of in a new customer scenario. Yeah, and, and actually, as we, as we look at it, Miriam, I know um, you you have a really good way of thinking about customers and, and profiling and risks. And I'm curious if, if that ties into this as well, if, if there are certain, you know, you look at a customer in a certain way and, and you're able to better define, I'm not even going to call it define, but divine uh, a scope and, and an estimate. I think this is, uh, it's an interesting conversation and I wish it was a simple answer because everything that's been said is absolutely true, but yet, story. Um, I think from a school perspective, how you would approach it, I think that the, the, the delivery person in me looks at it from the perspective of a work breakdown structure that gives you a total view of what the work is. Um, having said that, if what you're scoping is repeatable work, then a bottom-up approach may make sense. How many components of a certain type may exist so that you can, in fact, use some science to calculate it out. Typically, it takes us X amount of time. It should take us generally this much. Um, so it depends on the nature of what you're scoping, but I would say a combination of both it should be able to cover what scope is. Um, but at the same time, Lori, what you, uh, what you mentioned around the risk factor, I think that's an important part of scoping as well. I think what we've tried successfully um, at least, um, which I feel uh, is an idea that's got a lot of traction but hasn't been matured enough yet is the idea of being able to identify the risk areas uh, because those risks are generally are a great starting point for someone who is delivering the work to start managing from day one. And Yes, you may not know all the details that you need to know about how, what the, the requirements level risks that will come up. But for example, if you already know there are 25 integrations that are involved, that's a flag for risk, uh, as well as an area that, you know, from a scoping perspective, you need to spend more time on to better define what those 25 integrations are like at the high level. Are they all real time or are they the level of detail that you can take to from the scope perspective to have a better chance at estimating the effort, um, I think those risk profiles allows you to focus in on the parts that are. Yeah, I think, and Lori, I'm tying this into a question for you because the, um, 
one of the things with professional services firms, it doesn't matter whether technology or maybe a digital advertising agency or something, a lot of what you have to do is learn from previous engagements and factor that back into um, back into you know uh, the, the scoping cycle. So you go all the way through delivery and then you walk work back your way back around and and feed that back in. That's something that I know uh, certainly is as you looked in the workday practice and, and some of the work that you've done early on. How did you instill that discipline and and even build the right framework to know what to capture? I mean, do you have any thoughts on how somebody might go about that? Yeah, I mean that's a great point, and I think that's the place where um, folks struggle. Quite honestly, it's that's a really hard thing to do. I think there's this great awareness that in a perfect world that would automatically flow into. Uh, your future work, right? So um, it is something that you have to be intentional about. And I think even starting small is really useful. So I think, you know, the reality is that the way most firms um, approach that is just, you know, using the people who've done it before, right? That's why Andrea did so many, right? <laughs> she became the queen of, of knowing what it took to build a good estimate. Um, and, and then I think, you know, that that's not scalable, relying on the people who've done it. Uh, so it really becomes necessary to, um, you know, build in place both the checks and balances where you at least have some review of the estimates, but then you try to start capturing some real data. And I know that we, we all collectively did some work around that um, to be able to feed it into future work. But that's a really hard one to do. I think one of the key things there that is you ha as the person doing the scoping, you have to know the questions to ask. Because I think when you're downstream in delivery, I think sometimes you forget when you walk into it, like a sales cycle, it's a blank slate. All you know is this is a company that sells widgets and they want to do X and that's all you know. And you have to kind of get them on this path and start asking the questions and try to undercover those risk areas. And so one of the key things I think in that delivery loop is not only that, you know, if you're going to do X items that it takes usually three hours and there's 10 of those is that what of those things that you have to ask about early in the cycle in order to prevent this from being a problem later. And I think that's the piece that one can come from, you know, the circular documentation of going through the process and all of that and also experience. But in my experience, that's a hugely challenging thing because none of us know everything <laughs> and you go in and you have to know and listen to the client and understand and know which questions to ask to uncover those potential mind frames and to make sure that you've covered you know, all of the areas, um, which means you really have to know your craft, right? Do, so. do you think customers, t well, would you prefer a customer came to you with a very detailed uh, PRD or, or product requirement stock uh, and gave you that? Or does that worry you that they're way too in the weeds and, and you know, trying? I guess my question is, how detailed mm -hmm. information do you want to be able to do a scope? Do you scope against a detailed PRD or against a business problem and a budget? I mean, if you had to choose between the two, what would you choose? It's funny because I think that the more details generally, the better. However, the concern there is one of the big things, you know, we do have technology implementations. And one of the things we don't want to do and most people don't want to do is take what they have today system tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And what I think people tend to do when they go through that entire requirements decision is they've had some system in place, some legacy system all these years. They've got these processes in place that are all built around that. And that's how they know things. They don't know 
options per se. Some might, but in general. So often what you get when you get this whole you know, requirements document is basically all the requirements of the things that they've done for 15 years that they want to do in the new system. Whereas usually what you want to do in a technology implementation is go in and find out, okay, let's back up a section. Why do you do it this way? Maybe there's a better way to do it, that type of thing. So say it's good that they're aware enough to have that set of requirements, but I think it's often better, you know, and this is specific to technology, but perhaps some other things is to kind of sell them on the fact, let's look at the future. Let's look where you actually want to be and help us and allow us as the experts to kind of back it up a little and talk about, you know, how to change these processes and not just do what you've always done. So in that sense, I almost would rather have the blank slate and try to sell them on that theory and where you're actually, what you're actually trying to do. So Miriam, but it's a mix. I mean, there's not. I'll throw it to Miriam because I love that from a, um, being able to guide the customer standpoint, but does it make it harder when you inherit the project to then kind of put the genie back in the bottle a little bit and, and keep them moving? Cause there's also budget. I mean, very few customers. Oh yeah, some absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, would you rather, so again, anyway, I'll, ask ahead, a question, <laughs> I'll ask a question a little bit different way. Would you rather somebody showed up uh, and handed you a work breakdown structure or said, here's the business problem that we're going to try to solve and let's go solve it or something in the middle. Um, I think somewhere in the middle. I think organizing their thoughts is important. And I look at look at work breakdown structure as a way of organizing their thoughts and what the system should do. Uh, but at the same time, to Andrea's point, if they go to a level of details of requirements, they're oftentimes are missing a transfer, transformational aspect of it. Uh, the, the thought leadership that a professional services ter- firm could bring in to help them see things differently. Uh, but as, Andrea, you were talking, um, I was also realizing the luxuries that we have where we are very consultative even in our sales process. It's not unusual. As a matter of fact, I've been talking to folks where all the time, that's how they estimate, uh, which are fees that would also kind of draw the parallel to what you described, Lori, as a PRD. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very similar to that. Somebody just gives you a piece of paper, they think it is, and you have to figure out how to scope it. Um, and that's why I think estimation is not science, is an art, because oftentimes at a time that people try to communicate to you what they want, uh, first of all, it's a point in time. Um, businesses change. Sales cycles typically don't happen to be in weeks. They happen to be in months, sometimes years. Uh, things change. So um, I like to look at scope in general in whatever form that it comes in as more directional. And that's why I love our delivery method of thinking, which is much more adaptive, because I think that's the reality of what really happens. Oftentimes what gets sold is directionally where the customer wants to go, but oftentimes not specific enough to want to abide by it. However, the constraints that we have in the way we structure statement of work tends to want to lock lock us in. It's very specific, but we both know, and I think customer knows, and we know, oftentimes, if we stay within that box, we've missed the the point. Right. Can I just make a note on something you said on just because I've always wanted to put this on the record. I think RFPs in general are a horrible way to buy services. And I realize from a big company perspective, there's procurement issues and there's all these factors that probably do drive it. But 
we, we touched on this in other podcasts. I mean, when you're purchasing services, one of the things you're purchasing is relationships and the people and all of these things. So when the sales process is entirely a document that somebody in a room put a bunch of requirements, and let me tell you, I've seen a lot of RFPs, usually the requirements are nowhere near what you need to actually scope a system. Um, you know, it's four bullet points and they think it covers the system. Um, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's huge, but and then we take it and we always put the best foot forward and it's a big salesy document and all of these things. And I just think the end result doesn't actually generally get, think it should get, you know, it may work for a product sale, but for a services sale, I just think it's not a good process, but I, just I mean, have I think to get off my soapbox on that one. I think for large organizations, it's good for them to use RF, I'll call them RFIs, not RFPs, um, but RFIs to, to um, kind of narrow down the playing field. And that helps you pick pick a kind of a final group of potential vendors, but it doesn't help mm-hmm. you scope the solution because you're right. I mean, it's a one-way street. You're reading a document nine times out of 10. I, I've read countless thousands of them. And nine times out of 10, I can't, even though, you know, you, it may be typically the same genre of solution that needs to be built. I've never used the word genre mm-hmm. in the concept of, of, of services before. But, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it is a good one. The same genre, but, but there's, you can't, like divined from it what they actually want i mean it's um it's it's complicated never and it doesn't generally have like the true business objectives and really what success looks like and all these key things you should understand you can't get a feel for the organization and the way they make decisions which are also ways that you have to kind of frame you know your sales approach and then you know kind of what the true often doesn't lay out the process i mean there's so many gaps to it i think i just think in general agree an rfi can can narrow it down but um you know it is not the best way to buy services, in my opinion. So. Sure. And I, I think you, you also just nailed the part about that sales process, how much, of, uh, how much you learn about the organization you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're limited in understanding how the rest of the delivery is going to go and really why, Lori, you raised the whole idea of a risk profile. I think oftentimes what I haven't seen successfully done is having that risk profile form of the sale in the sales cycle that actually carries forward. I think it's a hard thing to do, but oftentimes because salespeople are different or sales pre-sales people are different from delivery people, uh, of information happens, but the exchange of a risk profile for a customer is just because of the interaction is something that doesn't carry forward. And I think it's an integral part of uh, a project of, program successful. We kind of touched on it, uh, it. I forget which episode it was when we talked about team culture. Mm. That becomes a lot more apparent as you deal with the various folks on the customer side. Yeah. And Lori, I'll throw this to you because we obviously just did a whole series on mindfulness. Um, and a big part of people, the reason people want to be mindful is because they need to listen more. Um, but there's a piece of this also, this discipline. How do you take an organization, whether it be a small team or a large team, and get the right discipline in so that there is, you know, the, the they're mindful, if you will, of of needing to ask the right questions and needing to listen mm-hmm. and 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 needing also to understand that there's a feedback loop that, that needs to be put back. I mean, do you have any hints or, or thoughts on how an organization could build that out? I think it, it requires a multifaceted approach to that. I think that it does require some thought in what are the typical kinds of questions that, you know, we have used in other similar 
projects, right? That's where, as you get better at it, as you get more experience, you know, there is value in, you know, there's at least a core set of questions that, um, that, that we have found and just sharing that with everyone, making sure that you're, you know, collaborating and that, that you're not siloing that off into one particular area. I mean, I think that's something that, that, that we as a team have, have done very well over the years is, is, is sharing that and asking people to add to that and having it be a living document. But I think it, it's more than that, right? Because sometimes you don't know what you, you don't know. And I think, um, you know, asking enough open-ended questions just to get people talking. I think, you know, the danger of coming in with a set of templates and these are the questions that we always ask, you're going to get very similar answers, right? So it's, it's asking open-ended questions. It's asking, um, you know, questions that you don't necessarily know the answer to and really challenging yourself to do that sort of letting go of your preconceived notions. Um, you know, asking general questions like, well, what should we have asked, but, but didn't, um, you know, so I think it's a combination of having that rigor around things that have worked in the past, but, but being open and then really listening and asking follow-up questions, not just taking what, what the customer says at the first pass. You're exactly right. And this is where the art comes in because I do think for those that have been listening to our podcast, they all know that we, we worked for a period, um, uh, together at one point. And I think one of the things that we did do well was categorize the types of things we do for customers, uh, try to put some, um, you know, t-shirt sizing, if you will, and level best effort estimates against those. But the real challenge is to Lori's point, you want to lead the customer. And so you don't want to just go in and be prescriptive and say, okay, you said these three things. And so therefore you're going to get these three deliverables and they're going to be exactly this amount. Um, and so there is that art that comes in of taking what they hear and then being able to translate that into, into the deliverables that are kind of already predefined some, and sometimes they're not. And I think that is, um, a really difficult mm -hmm. skill. Some people have it a little bit more innately than others, but I think it's a difficult skill to, uh, besides just making people do this for 15 years, uh, to, to build. And I don't know, I mean, have you guys seen certain types of profiles of folks or, you know, what, what is the right mix of somebody that can help drive this process? Dead silence. Nobody can do it. <laughs> Well, I know Andrea has hired a number of people to do this role. Uh, Andrea, as you look back, uh, who do you think was the most successful? At the scoping? At, at the, the scoping, scoping question? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, it's funny, you know, because that, that's a role where you kind of want, you need a blend of kind of a salesperson and a delivery person because, you know, you can't, you can take the, the uber technical folks who absolutely construct it and put it out of this, but you put them in front of the client and they're not the right person in the sales role because the personalities don't quite work. And so you kind of need that kind of blend. Um, it, it's a hard role, I think, to fill, kind of to find that. Um, yeah, I don't, you stumped us there, Lori. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that you have to, uh, it's almost like a three-legged stool. You need somebody that can scope, that, that understands how to put the pieces together and what it's going to take to do it. You need somebody that can solution or kind of draw the, you know, the, the overall, especially if it's in, in technology and, 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 and IT and development, um, draw what needs to happen so people can visualize uh, how the pieces fit together. But the third piece, and I think a lot of times when people talk about, um, scopers or whether, whether they're called solution architects or systems engineers or whatever they're called, 
Um, the third piece that sometimes what people really mean is evangelism. It's somebody that can get there and I call them the hand wavers. And by the way, I used to be one, so I, there's nothing wrong with that. Many, many years ago when I could still like raise my hands high, but, um, but I do think there is that part. And I think it's very, very hard to find somebody that can do all three of those things. And yet they are the ones that even more so than the salespeople set up um, set up the, the, the delivery team in, you know, to succeed or fail. And I think often where I've seen it most successful is where you try to find somebody that can do two of those. You build a team, right? Find somebody that can do two yeah. of those. Um, and then somebody else can maybe do one or whatever, but you, you got to look at it as, as a mix and, and not just, not just one, but I think it is hard to hire. It's, and it's, I mean, it's so funny that I fell into this role because if you'd asked me 10 years ago, the thought of being in sales would never, ever have crossed my mind. And somehow I not only did it all those years in Imperio, I'm in the same role yet, yet again. Um, and, you know, honestly, actually, it's Tom Scott who I blame. So if anybody <laughs> is still communicating with him, he's the one and he knows it that pulled me into this. But I think what I learned over the years, because I came from a delivery background, it's that sales aspect. I think a lot, you know, a lot of people forget when it gets down to delivery that if you don't sell the client, we, none of us win because we, we don't get a deal. So you need that, that third part of the stool you were mentioning, um, is kind of a key aspect and getting the customer to trust you and all that. And those are kind of the same soft skills that are always good in, in, uh, soft skills with a sales spin that you need uh, in consulting. So Definitely, that's hard. Yeah, I think, uh, Lori, you definitely nailed, nailed it. And I think that's what it's hard to be able uh, to have someone who actually has all those traits and wants to do this job because this is hard. Uh, if you are he heavier, let's say your major is delivery, you tend to see a lot more problems because you tend to want to have a lot more questions answered before you can commit to it. If you are not as... Uh, well-versed with the delivery side of things, you tend to oversimplify stuff. You tend to, you're, you can't you can be a big picture, big picture person. You can stand back, look at the fact that you've never delivered before. So you tend to miss out those details that make something hard to deliver. And obviously the customer part, uh, I think it kind of, it, uh, it traverses uh, no matter what role you play in consulting, you got to be good at getting information from people and building those relationships. But it's a, it, it's a hard role to hire and it's a hard role to keep people at. Right. Because of demands exactly. of the role. It wears it you down. For yeah, sure. exactly. And Lori, a question for you. The, um, would, do you think that the, uh, whoever, let's call them the SA or the scoper, um, uh, do you think they should be involved throughout the life of the project or should they be folks that come in and scope it and then leave it? Maybe check in here or there, but I mean, is there benefit to having them involved or is it cleaner if they're not throughout the life of life cycle of the project? I think the transition is definitely a key part of, um, uh, the customer experience. And so I think there can't be this throwing it over the wall. I think it's really important to have good relationships, a good transition between sales and delivery, um, and potentially sometimes, you know, the, the, the delivery involvement before the deal closes. Um, but I do think at a certain point it does and should naturally transition to, um, they are not continuing to be a part because the project team then needs to uh, drive those relationships and be seen as the 
um, the, the, the ones who know the, the solution best for that customer. Um, now that's not to say that if, you know, three months into the project, there are questions, uh, you know, that you shouldn't have easy access to those people. But I, you know, from my experience, I like to see those people fade away. I just don't like to see them, you know, lob it over a wall. Right. I was going to ask Andrea, do you think that there is, do you, do you scope differently for a project that you know you're going to be involved in versus a project you know you're going to hand over? <laughs> yeah, I want to answer. Not to put you on the spot, but we're all going to sit here and be mindful while you answer. Yes, I, I mean, I do. I, I will honestly answer you that I think it's easier to scope and put dollar figures around things when somebody else is going to be delivering that. It's kind of a harsh way to put it, but it goes back to kind of my earlier factor in that you have to be a salesperson too. I mean, there's this aspect of, you know, for any of us, if salespeople aren't selling as, you know, as much of a pain in the ass as they can be to work with. And as much as there's those that drive us nuts, they're not selling. None of us are successful. I mean, Mm -hmm. we need those deals. And so I think there does have to be some sort of an aspect of thinking like the salesperson, getting in this done and understanding kind of what the requirements are and all of that within reason, of course, you you don't want to set up the client. So, and and I think also the personality, a lot of the folks that end up in kind of a pre-sales roles do so because they get really excited and energized and all this by that kind of upfront and the solutioning and all of this stuff. And then they kind of get bored with, with the process. So they hurt the best people often to hold it and, you know, retain it. So, um, so that said, most of the scoping I've done, I have not been in, engaged in the delivery. And I think there's definite benefits to having the person engaged, but I think there's benefits to not as well. And that's kind of a harsh reality, but I admit to it. Actually, that, that is a perfect, I've learned a lot from talking through this today, but that's a perfect segue into our next episode, which is talking about staffing, which I can't wait for (laughs) because I know we all, this is something we all have done a lot of and probably all have our own uh, opinion about uh, how best to go about it. So uh, uh, we'll look forward to, to talking to everybody about scoping next time. Before we end, we'll do a quick lightning round. We, we uh, had, haven't uh, done this in, in an episode and a half or so. So let me start with the first question would be, have you guys uh, watched any good documentaries lately? Moana doesn't count as a documentary. Let me just put that out there. I saw The Avengers. Is that a documentary? <laughs> no, no. What's the movie that was out? It's not even The Avengers. Uh, no. My answer to documentaries would be No. No so, um, one that I haven't watched recently, but it is my all time favorite documentary is, um, uh, called young at heart. Have you guys ever heard of it? Or have I talked to you about, yes, I should put her on here and ask her to describe it <laughs> to see if she was mindfully listening to me all those times I talked about young at heart. Old people who sing. Right. Old, old people who sing very good. So that's actually wait, wait, a two. Let me stop for one second. So you've talked about it, but she's never gone to see it. <laughs> hey, that's true. I've that never taken her to see it. Andrew, that's your homework. <laughs> that's because it's, I have to go to Alabama and I can't find Alabama. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're up in Massachusetts. So if we want oh, to see them live. closer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but I can, your homework could be to watch the documentary, but, um, so the, it's a, it's from 2007, but it's, um, based, it, it's about a chorus of senior citizens who cover songs by like Jimi Hendrix, Coldplay, Sonic Youth. So they do all this oh, wow. classic rock. 
um, stuff. And the documentary itself documents the, the final weeks of a rehearsal. Um, the, the average age of these people is 81. And you have to be like, I think you have to be 70 in order to even qualify, but it's just the most moving. Actually, it's one of those that I saw on a plane. I was flying somewhere, um, probably to the West Coast to meet one or all of you, but with Jonah, actually. And we're sitting there and I'm watching this documentary. And it's one of those where I had a big smile on my face, but also the average age is 81. As you can imagine, it was a little challenging <laughs> through some of it. So I'm like sobbing through the documentary, but it was, it was really touching. Um, there's a piece where they're, uh, singing, um, uh, for prisoners at a prison, just so moving. So at, at that point I said, I've got to go see these people in person and they do concerts. Um, sometimes they travel, but most of them are in Massachusetts and just the spirit of these folks is, is incredible. So, and so that's my favorite. The name of the group is young at heart. Is that also the name of the documentary? Yes. Yes. And the documentary won the LA Film Festival um, Award that year. I think they had nine different nominations uh, and, and won all nine in different film festivals uh, for that season. So it's a good yeah, one. I, I mean, you guys know I love music. I am a huge believer in, in music, especially um, for folks that are sick or for older mm -hmm. folks. It just helps them engage because it's very left brain, right brain. And I think mm -hmm. it, it does keep people keep people young. Um, and, and that, that's that I got, I'm going to have to go check that one out. I, uh, speaking of, of, of crying on planes, I, uh, what brought this up was I had a flight back from Australia a couple weeks ago and I was trying to watch anything I could. And, and I don't, there weren't that many movies out. So I, I do tend to watch a lot of documentaries anyway, usually about food, but I found this one called Gleason. <laughs> Have you guys heard, heard hmm. of, seen this one? So there's a football player in yeah. New Orleans, or was a football player in New Orleans named, uh, I don't remember his first name, I think it was Steve maybe, uh, Gleason was his last name. And he, he got, he uh, um, came, got L ALS. And so it's the no. story of him. And so he found out that he, had, uh, he actually had a ALS just a couple months before his first son was born. And so it's the story of him. He immediately started to record things because he knew that if it advanced, that his son wouldn't know him as the big football. Mm -hmm. And he was a you know very well-known football player for the New Orleans Saints. And so he started recording it. And then once the, his son was born, he kept recording. He recorded video di diaries and um, <clears throat> literally all the way up until till the very end. And I think, first of all, just absolute sobbing. I really think the flight attendant thought I was having a breakdown. Um, but it was such a sweet story of the, the, first of all, you know, just he and his wife and it was very honest of what she went through, um, you know, trying to help him through it. And, and at the, you know, one point, and I know she had to feel like she sort of had two babies, right? Because he reached a point where he couldn't always take care of himself. And um, anyway, it was just a really fascinating documentary on not just ALS, but also just the human condition and, and what, um, what people uh, commit to do together and how they work through it. And it, it was really good. And actually, to be very honest and totally transparent, I'm pretty sure I was writing the, uh, uh, the outline for this uh uh, this segment or this episode while I was watching that. So I think that's probably why I put the documentary question in there. So not that I teed myself up or anything for, for an easy answer. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Miriam, how about you? Any documentaries? 
No, actually, as I, you guys were talking, I was making notes of documentaries <laughs> that I should watch. But no, I, I, there's nothing that comes uh, to mind that uh, enough for me to remember. I'm sure I've seen uh, a few. Uh, it just hasn't been anything in recent that I can recall. I don't have a very good memory anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. What about anything? Anything good on any TV series you guys are watching? I was going to say, I didn't mean the Avengers. I meant Guardians of the Galaxy. I went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy in the theater. And oh, that's a new I, one, right? Yeah, which my kids wanted to see it. It's not one I normally see, but it was hilarious to the point that Ryan, my son, told me I was laughing too hard. I was too loud. <laughs> it was funny? <laughs> so, oh, yeah, it's hilarious. Yes. Is it I didn't. Cartoon? I didn't really see I didn't see the first. It's not a cartoon. It's not a cartoon, <laughs> but it's like all... Fictional stuff, obviously, but um, I hadn't seen the first one, and so I, yeah, what the heck, I went with them, and yeah, it was hilarious. I actually really enjoyed it. So that's in the theaters now. I love that. So, uh, and Miriam, you just are too busy to watch TV. Well, yeah, I guess I'm waiting for this is us to start again. Oh, and uh, Ken is watching a few series that you know what I have no interest. Obviously, we have very different TV styles. Uh, I mean, you know, so no, nothing that I'm hooked on. But when you were talking about movie, the movie that comes to mind that I watched recently uh, on a trip, I guess during spring break. Uh, have you guys watched the movie Lion? Yes. Uh, oh, I think I saw through that one too. Oh my gosh, what a tearjerker! But I actually love that movie. Um, it, it's, it's a true story, and I think that was probably the part that made it much more. I that it was a true story, but it was one that I can remember in recent, or last month, that I felt like, okay, um, it, there was a lot of feeling invo- feelings involved with that. I think Nicole Kidman was uh, great in it, and yeah. just the story itself touched me. Yeah, agreed. It was yeah. good. It, I think had knowing going into it, knowing that it was a true story made it that much better. Because yes. otherwise you wouldn't yes. believe it. Exactly. I mean, it was bizarre. <laughs> so many levels. Uh, but uh, when you realize that this was a true story, it was just kind of, can't imagine anything like that happening. And I'm, I lived in India for five years. So I the overpopulation, the craziness, even as someone who lived there, I don't think I could navigate their trains and just the whole what it's like to be on the streets, but for mm-hmm. the kid to have survived and landed where he did, then finding, oh my God, true Google. Well, not, I mean, all of it exactly. sounds like I mean, a perfect to, story. To tie it back to technology, but my gosh, you know, he wouldn't have been able to find where he was from had Google Maps not started appearing, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine that night Amazing. after night, he just sat there and zoomed in and zoomed in. And of course, mm-hmm. I I'd read a little bit about it beforehand, so I knew. So I was like wanting to coach him through the... The <laughs> like, no, go further. Go and further. the fact that he realized the name, the name of the city that he remembered was nothing. It wasn't. It was something that he had heard and associated to the name of place he lived. It wasn't a real place. Yeah, it was fanatically closest to what he remembered the name of the city to be. So just the whole thing was most. The movie was well done. It was long, um, but yeah. I think it goes down on my list of, you know, top ten movies. And honestly, in some ways, it, it is it's a documentary in the sense that that it's it's biographical. I mean, it obviously True. is not the original 
um, actors by any means, but one quick story I saw, um, uh, the guy that um, played the star, what was his name? I love him. Uh, Dev Patel. Dev Patel. Uh, he was interviewed, and, uh, and they were talking about the little boy that played him as a little boy. And apparently, this little boy had never been outside of India. And so the first time he comes to the U.S., he literally is on red carpets and, you know, and, <laughs> and limos and stuff. And apparently he got quite um, into the, the I'm, a, I'm a movie star. Uh, <laughs> just a really cute story about, you know, this is how all movie stars are and everything. Everybody's life is always this way, which is great. But uh, He was cute. Was he even an actor? I don't think he was an actor. The little was boy he an was actor? not, no. I mean, they literally, oh, I think wow. they did like a casting call in some village in India and found him. <laughs> but, wow. Very cute. Yeah, very cute. So, well, great. Well, thank you guys. I think it's been a great episode. Um, love talking about scoping and getting your insight. And I'm really looking forward to the next one, talking about staffing. And look forward to having everybody back next time. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Lori. Bye. join us again on an upcoming episode. But in the meantime, visit our website at realtechreallife.com, check out our episode guide, and leave us comments and feedback and questions that you'd like to have us answer in future episodes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.